Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Middle East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. The glass should have been half full rather than half empty. But with a little help from its friends, Qatar has proven to be its own worst enemy in the court of public opinion when it comes to the reputational potential of the 2022 World Cup. Qatari soft power setbacks loom large, despite United States praise for the Gulf states' help in the bungled U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021, and its willingness to work with Europe to help the continent wean itself off Russian energy. Moreover, Qatar's ability to mitigate the impact of an almost four-year-long United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia-led economic and diplomatic boycott garnered it empathy as the underdog, especially because acceptance of the two states' demands would have stripped it of its sovereignty. Moreover, Qatar has taken significant steps to address the labor concerns of human rights and labor organizations, even though it has yet to meet international standards and enforcement problems remain. It has liberalized its kafala labor regime, which left workers who constitute a majority of the population at the mercy of their employers, introduced the region's first minimum economic wage, enhanced workers' rights, and improved working conditions. Nevertheless, worker, gender, and human rights, together with alleged guttery ties to Islamists and jihadists, continued to dominate media reporting in the final stretch to the 2022 World Cup in Doha. The reporting is a result of an explosive mix. Legitimate concerns and demands put forward by human rights groups that see the final sprint as an opportunity. A greater willingness by Qatari and conservative Muslim athletes and sports entities to fight back against liberal concerns particularly LGBTQ plus rights, laid bare by Qatar's hosting of the World Cup. Qatar's failure to put the horse in front of the cart in anticipating and responding to concerns, such as hotel access for LGBTQ plus fans, and a continued, primarily Emirati effort to covertly muddy Qatar's waters through a well-funded media and influencing campaign that sought to exacerbate the Gulf states' dilemmas. For good or for bad, Qatar has been at the cutting edge of its World Cup journey. From the moment world soccer body FIFA in December 2010 awarded hosting rights for the 2022 tournament to the Gulf state to its actual staging of the event. Labor rights and the integrity of the Qatari bid were at the forefront in the early days of Qatar's journey. 12 years later, labor issues still exist. They have been joined by LGBTQ plus rights, particularly as they pertain to fans during the World Cup, human and political rights, and controversy over Qatari's policies fueled by regional geopolitical rivalries. An American-trained Qatari medical doctor seeking asylum in the United States became in May 2022, 
one of the few, if not the first Qatari national to come out publicly as gay. With homosexuality considered illegal in Qatar and punishable with years in prison, gays fear being detected or entrapped and harassed by police and security services. If exposed, they face social shaming, permanent ostracization from friends and family, and risks to their mental health. I would like to share my views with my name as a physician and as a Guthrie citizen that still has parents and siblings in the country. They need to know I am one of their own and am not a Western agenda, as they refer to us, Nasser Mohammed said. Mohammed was referring to assertions by many Qataris that LGBTQ plus Qataris were pawns in Western efforts to impose views that clash with the Gulf states' conservative religious culture that is upheld by the traditional nuclear family. The Qatari conspiracy theory is echoed in analysis put forward by some scholars. In the first book published on the Guthrie World Cup, Paul Michael Barnigan and Daniel Reiches suggest that the media and non-governmental organizations seek to gain their own soft power through strategies that simply disempower others. The scholars assert that NGOs and Western media desire to police, resist, and discipline states. Asked to elaborate, Mr. Brannigan said in an email that the authors had based their analysis on a body of research on media and international governance. He said the authors wanted to highlight the importance to the global media and international non-organizations of the need to justify their worth to international society that is achieved in large part when such non-state actors situate themselves as moral or ethical guardians of the international system who specifically serve specific public as opposed to state or private interests. Mr. Brannigan went on to say that the ultimate goal of these non-state actors is to forcibly shame states into some form of behavior or policy change, as this acts as a crucible symbolic soft power coup in their efforts to position themselves as crucial facets of the international system. While NGOs have agendas, mainstream media's purpose is to report the facts and let chips fall where they fall, short of endangering someone's life. A free media's purpose is not the imposition of a political and or social agenda, even if various media reflect the value systems and culture of their core readership and country of publication. Messrs. Brannigan and Reich's assertion ignores the fact that to the degree that they have formulated soft power strategies, their success rests on the accuracy of their reporting, not on some inherent desire to significantly damage states' reputations. States run reputational risks because of discriminatory laws and practices that violate internationally recognized legal rights that are exposed by the reporting of human rights groups, labor unions, multilateral organizations and campaigns waged by activists 
as well as the media. Not all issues legitimately raised by non-governmental organizations or reported in the media are equally black and white. In the ultimate analysis, labor was one issue where Gutta and Gutteris largely agreed that change was needed, even if the Gulf state was often slow in accepting and implementing reforms. The International Labor Organization reported in May 2022 that due to the reforms, the number of workers who were able to change jobs had risen from 8,653 in 2018 to 242,870 in 2021. In addition, more than 280,000 workers, primarily in the construction industry, had wage increases because of the introduction of a minimum wage while 96% of workers were covered by a wage protection system designed to ensure timely payment of salaries and prevent abuse. At about the same time, Gata confirmed an Amnesty International report asserting the security guards on World Cup related projects had been exploited and vowed to take corrective action. Gata's failure to grab the bull by the horns and ensure that it was one step ahead of its critics, repeatedly put it on the defense, generating negative reporting. The failure damaged rather than enhanced guttery soft power, particularly in the last year before the tournament, which was crunch time for human rights groups and other NGOs, attempting to get as much of their agenda accepted as possible. Exactly six months before the opening match of the 2022 World Cup, human rights groups and other activists captured headlines by demanding that the Gulf state and FIFA compensate thousands of workers who had suffered labor abuse or died while working on projects related to the tournament. The groups and activists said the abuse included unexplained deaths and injuries, wage theft, and exorbitant recruitment fees. FIFA needs to work with Guttery authorities in the six month lead up to the 2022 World Cup to establish a comprehensive program to address abuses suffered by migrant workers, the organizations and activists said in a statement. FIFA should set aside at least $440 million, equivalent to the prize money provided to 2022 World Cup teams to invest in funds to compensate workers and improve workers' protection. Earlier, the Guardian newspaper, a pillar of critical coverage of the Guttery World Cup, reported that migrant workers, a majority of the Guttery population, had collectively paid billions of dollars in illegal recruitment fees over the last decade. The migrant workers injured or families of those who died in the buildup to the World Cup should be cared for, said Lisa Claverness, the president of the Norwegian Football Federation at a FIFA Congress in Doha in March 2022. Claverness's stirring speech drew a fury response from Hassan Al-Thawadi, the Secretary General of the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy, the guttery organizer of the World Cup. We're not seeking validation. Legacy is be being delivered as we speak. We've showcased to the world 
what tournament hosting can do, Mr. Althawadi said. Qatar has outlawed burdening migrant workers with recruitment fees as part of its reforms. Qatar opened recruitment centers in eight labor supplying countries to ensure that recruitment would meet ethical standards in line with recommendations made by a Guttery Foundation study. The centers have reduced the risk of employment terms in workers' contracts being unilaterally changed, but have been unable to cut the leveling of recruitment fees. To compensate for their inability, the Supreme Committee has obliged companies it contracts to repay the fees without workers having to provide proof of payment. Companies have so far pledged to repay roughly $28.5 million to some 49,000 workers, 22 million of which had been paid out by March 2022. It is a step the government could have applied universally with relative ease to demonstrate sincerity and counter the criticism. Similarly, in response to complaints raised by human rights groups and others, the government could also have offered to compensate families of workers who die on construction sites, preempting the demand by the human rights groups and activists. None of these measures would have put a dent in guttery budgets, but would have earned the Gulf state goodwill. Leaving dollar figures aside, compensation for workers is a reasonable demand that should have been anticipated, particularly given the army of American and European public relations advisors and lobbyists that Qatar, like other Gulf states, has recruited. Anticipating and being seen as taking the lead in reforms, rather than being perceived of having been dragged into them, is particularly important, with polls showing that fans care about the issues involved. For example, a survey in 2022 suggested that 41% of Americans, 51% of American sports fans, and 61% of avid fans said guttery human rights violations reduced their interest in the World Cup. The going gets tougher when differences emerge over what constitutes a right, and those differences reflect views held by a majority of the public as is the case with LGBTQ plus rights. LGBTQ plus rights, unlike labor issues, have sparked a drawing of battle lines in the sports world between Muslim and non-Muslim executives, athletes, and commentators. Guttery officials took issue with the national football teams that publicly took a stand on labor issues. In one instance, the Danish football union Denmark's governing soccer body announced that its commercial sponsors had agreed to surrender space on training kits to allow for messaging critical of Gata's treatment of migrant workers. The union said it would also minimize the number of trips to Gata by the Danish team that has already qualified for the World Cup to avoid commercial activities that promote the World Cup's hosts events. Similarly, Statements by seven-time Formula One world champion Lewis Hamilton and Australian footballer Josh Cavallo on LGBTQ plus rights drew strong responses. Hamilton demonstratively wore a helmet featuring the colors of the LGBT plus pride progress flag 
during the debut Qatar Grand Prix in 2021. As he came out as being gay, Cavallo said he would be scared to play at the Qatar World Cup because of the country's criminalization of homosexuality. Cavallo earned plaudits from luminaries such as legendary Swedish forward Zetan Ibrahimovic and US talk show host Ellen DeGeneres. Former Egypt international Mohamed Abu Treka, widely considered one of Egypt's greatest footballers and a commentator on B in Sports, Qatar sports television franchise, asserted that homosexuality is not compatible with Islam. Mr. Abu Treka went on to say that our role is to stand up to this phenomenon, homosexuality, because it's a dangerous ideology and it's becoming nasty and people are not ashamed of it anymore. They will tell you that homosexuality is human rights. No, it is not human rights. In fact, it's against humanity. The controversy touches on the fragile balance between a minority's right to legal recognition and protection and a society that in the majority opposes legalization. It is very jarring living here. It is traumatizing to see that you are the cause of your parents' anguish, that you are shaming your family. It is a constant onslaught and it is killing me. It has caused irreparable damage to my mental health. I wouldn't have chosen to have been born in a place where my life is tantamount to my death. There is no prospect or future for me here. No normalcy, said Majid al-Ghathari, a pseudonym for a Ghathari gay in an article published in 2011 that sparked outrage in the Gulf state. The International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association, ILGA World, noted in a December 2020 report on state-sponsored homophobia that while there are no reported cases of death penalty being applied for consensual same-sex sexual activity in Qatar as of October 2020, there are local testimonies indicating that LGBTI people living in Qatar face an extremely hostile context. The report implicitly acknowledged the dilemma in seeking to secure LGBTQ plus rights in ways that don't further disadvantage the group in countries where public opinion and government oppose legal legitimization. Guttery officials have sought to reassure advocates of LGBTQ plus rights that Qatar would not discriminate against them or put them in legal jeopardy during the World Cup, as long as they adhere to Qatari norms that frown on public displays of affection irrespective of gender. I would like to assure any fan of any gender, sexual orientation, religion, race, to rest assured that Qatar is one of the most safe countries in the world and they'll all be welcome here, said Nasser Al-Khattar, the Qatar World Cup chief executive. Mr. Al-Khattar added that public displays of affection is frowned upon. It's not part of our culture, but that goes across the board to everybody. During a visit to Berlin, 
Gadri Amir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani added that we expect and want people to respect our culture. A senior Gadri security official, Major General Abdulaziz Abdullah Al Ansari, while insisting that LGBTQ plus fans would be welcome, advised them not to overtly promote LGBTQ plus freedoms by, for example, displaying the rainbow flag. If a fan raised the flag and I took it from him, it's not because I really want to really take it to re really insult him, but to protect him. Because if it's not me, somebody else around him might attack him. I cannot guarantee the behavior of the whole people, said Mr. Al-Ansari, the chairman of the Interior Ministry's National Counterterrorism Committee. Qatar has done itself few favors with repeated media-related incidents involving the arrest and deportation of journalists who sought to investigate labor conditions without oversight by the authorities, as well as attempts to squash criticism. Qatar's Al Jazeera television network, whose English language service has earned praise for its professionalism, failed to report on either Mr. Hamilton or the Danish Union's protests, but did show the F1 driver wearing his Pride Progress helmet without explaining what it represented. The network has over the years reported on labor conditions in Qatar, even if it by the same token has frequently given the story a pass. Nevertheless, that is overshadowed by incidents like Gata's handling of the case of Abdullah Ibhaz, a Jordanian-Palestinian Supreme Committee communications executive who opposed putting a spin on a strike by migrant workers, including some aligned to World Cup-related projects. The workers were on strike because their salaries had not been paid. Mr. Ibhaz was subsequently accused of leaking state secrets and awarding a social media tender to a Turkish bidder in return for Turkish citizenship. He asserts that he was forced to sign a confession and was initially refused access to a lawyer. Mr. Ibhaz was sentenced to five years in prison based on evidence that according to Human Rights Watch was vague, circumstantial, and in some cases, contradictory. However, an appeal court subsequently reduced his sentence to three years in jail. In a statement, the Supreme Committee contended that the assertion that the changes constitute retribution for raising matters pertaining to workers' welfare is absolutely false. Mr. Ipace's case may not be an isolated incident. In contrast to the first part of the past decade, when Gata actively engaged with its critics, including human rights and labor activists, it now seems to feel that it has done its bit with the reforms and it's time to control the narrative in ways that may do more damage than produce benefit. An investigative report by Associated Press described in February 2022 how Gata paid more than $10 million to a company staffed by former CIA operatives to silence criticism from the head of German soccer. 
At the same time, Qatar continued to be dogged by its links to Islamists as well as jihadists. Most recently, a US court case and a federal investigation put Qatar's alleged ties back in the spotlight. Family of Stephen Sutlov, an American journalist beheaded in 2014 in Syria by the Islamic State, assert in a lawsuit that prominent Qatari institutions wired $800,000 to an Islamic State judge who ordered the murder of Mr. Sotlov and another American journalist, James Foley. Separately, federal prosecutors have been investigating potential ties between militants and Khalid bin Hamad al-Thani, a half-brother of Qatar's emir. The investigation focused on whether Mr. al-Thani provided money and supplies to al-Nusra, al-Qaeda's branch in Syria. Similar allegations have been made in two ongoing lawsuits filed in London on behalf of Syrian refugees. Qatar has consistently denied supporting political violence. But like other Gulf states, including the UAE and Saudi Arabia, supported militants in Syria fighting the regime of President Bashar al-Assad. Look, in Syria, everybody did mistakes, including your country. Ahmad bin Jassim al-Thani, Qatar's former prime minister and foreign minister, said in a 2017 interview. He insisted that Qatar had never intentionally funded extremists in Syria and had cut off funding to any group it learned that had another agenda. Controversy about Gusta's hosting of the World Cup has been distorted by blurring of what constitute legitimate issues, including human, media, labor, and LGBTQ plus rights, and the integrity of the Guttery bid, bias and prejudice, and sour grapes, cloaked in questions about Qatar's size, climate, and soccer legacy, and information warfares waged primarily by the United Arab Emirates. While there was good reason to question the integrity of the Qatari bid, the fact of the matter is that Qatar was caught in the hot seat at a time that corruption in FIFA was being targeted. Discussion about the bid was partly driven by the Gulf state's willingness to invest far more than its competitors to win the hosting rights and stage the tournament. The debate failed to recognize that unlike other tournament hosts, Qatar's sporting strategy was not simply intended to boost nation branding. It was part of a much broader soft power effort that aims to ensure that the international community has a stake in coming to Qatar's rescue in case of an emergency, much as it did in 1991 when a US-led coalition that included Arab states, forced Iraqi troops to withdraw from Kuwait. With a citizenry of only 300,000, Qatar cannot defend itself against a conventional attack, irrespective of how much sophisticated weaponry it acquires. Qatar's soft power strategy involves, besides sports, a fast-paced mediation-driven foreign policy the creation of a world-class airline and air traffic hub, hosting of the most extensive U.S. military base in the Middle East, 
sponsorship of high-profile museums and arts events, and acquisition of eye-catching real estate and investment in multinational blue chips. The multiple controversies suggest that the soft power impact of the World Cup has been less effective than that of fast-paced mediation-driven Qatar's foreign policy, even if more than a decade of World Cup-related pressure on Qatar significantly improve conditions of migrant labor. Assuming Qatar pulls the World Cup off without major hitches, the Gulf state will likely benefit from its demonstrated ability to host a mega event. There is, however, little indication that it will have improved the situation of LGBTQ plus or enhanced press and political freedoms. By comparison, Qatar has earned praise for its enabling of peace talks between the United States and the Taliban, help in the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the Gulf state's willingness to work with Europe to help the continent wean itself off Russian energy. Moreover, Qatar's ability to mitigate the impact of the UAE-Saudi-led boycott garnered it empathy as the underdog. While the hosting of the World Cup has earned Qatar at best a mixed image boost, its foreign policy persuaded the United States to nominate the Gulf state as one of the relatively few countries with the status of a major non-NATO ally. Neither Saudi Arabia nor the UAE enjoy that status. Said Middle East scholar Adil Hameza, the Qataris are in a unique spot as a trusted player to a spectrum of actors that is almost unparalleled, from the White House to the Taliban, to Iran, to European gas consumers. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Also, thank you to all who have demonstrated their appreciation for my column by becoming paid subscribers. This allows me to ensure that it continues to have maximum impact. Maintaining free distribution means that news websites, blogs, and newsletters across the globe can republish it. I launched my column 12 years ago. If you are able and willing to support the column, please become a paid subscriber by clicking on Substack on the subscription button at www.jamesmdorsey.substack.com and choosing one of the subscription options. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. Thank you. Take care and best wishes.